We are continuing on in our Esther series. We're going to be in chapter 8, week 8 of our series on Esther. But before we get there this morning, I want to share, uh, as most of you know, this is the last Sunday of the month, which means it's a mission Sunday. If you don't know what that means, let me just give you a brief I'm kind of new to this whole thing too. I've only been here for what, six months at this point? Uh, Mission Sunday is when we take the last week of every month and we focus on partners, ministry partners, missionaries um, across the globe that we partner with as a church. If you didn't know, you, we as a church tithe the money that we receive back into local and global outreach. It's, it's, It's something we're super passionate about. We give to missions. And on the last week of every month, we highlight or are trying to highlight a missions partner. Just real quick on a show of hands, is that news to anybody? Is that new to you? And it, even if one hand goes up, I'd be, because it was new to me when I started, okay? Uh, for most of you, you're like, dude, we've been here for 30 years. Yeah, we know, we, you know, we know how this rolls. Anyway, I'm coming in and I'm figuring out a lot of new things. Today is a mission Sunday. It's June 26th. Like Josh said, next week is July 3rd, leading into July, uh, July 4th, which is going to be an, uh, an incredible day. So this is, this is a mission Sunday, June 26th. Uh, There's an offering box in the back. If you want to give above and beyond what you normally give, you can give to missions. And a few weeks ago, part of your missions giving and some other fundraising sent me uh, to the Dominican Republic with one of our elders, Robert Hartzell, who many of you know. I was able, yeah, come on, come on. If you're going to clap, you just got to clap. Like, you know, thank you. I was able to go to the DR and I was able to, to, to actually do a lot of things. Um, I was able to catch up with what Robert does through Fountains of Life. He is one of our missionaries, him and Cindy, that we support every single month. They are based here in the States, but they work um, in the Dominican Republic for over two decades. They're doing incredible work down there. I was able to catch up with him at a pastor's conference where we have, uh, I think, over 50 pastors for an eight-hour-long conference on a Saturday. You know that God is moving when people show up for eight hours on a day off, Okay. Um, that was incredible, but we were also able to go, and for the first time, I was able to meet Pastor Raul, Jose Raul Aquino, who you've been supporting for, I think, two, two decades, maybe. I mean, it's been a, it's been a really long time. Uh, interesting story. Robert and Cindy pastored the church that Raul now pastors in the DR, and we are able to support him every single month. I want to do this real quick. Uh, I want to show you a little just brief 90-second recap of what I got to do, and then I'll come back and we can... We can talk about the rest. Is that, does that sound good? Barbara, you good back there? Sorry, no, no dramatic, like, boom, ending. My bad. Um, camera really adds 10 pounds, doesn't it? I mean, I just, good Lord, I looked at myself just now. Hello. I'm just kidding. I was able to preach there uh, on Sunday morning in Spanish, which is, which is really cool because I learned Spanish when I was in Costa Rica. Uh, haven't had a bunch of practice, if you will. You all speak English. I speak English. Uh, but I was able to go. I wrote about 10 pages of notes and just, I think I just read them all. I think, right, you know, right, Robert? But, uh, some of the footage you saw in the video was um, a school that Raul has, just like Beaches Chapel Church and School. They have a church and a school, and they're doing incredible things. Raul shared 
Uh, they, had just, they had just opened three new sections to their school, one of which is for welding, teaching people, uh, kids, how to weld. They have a trade, and now they can work with metal. Another one is, uh, I think, woodworking, I think was in the center, was, uh, was woodworking and, and, and design. And the far right one in the, in the complex was a professional commercial-grade kitchen that they were starting to put together, which is absolutely incredible because you're giving uh, the next generation, you're giving them trades and jobs to be able to go into after school. Um, also, something that I, that I, actually, I actually started um, tearing up at was Raul just shared his heart for the autistic community in the DR. His son has autism. And Raul looked at me during the pastor's conference and he said, I often ask God why he would give me an autistic son. But then I know that it was for a purpose because he said, your son needs a special father. And that person is him. He's a pastor. He's not a community organizer. He's a pastor. It's not just a school. It's a Christian school. It's not just a church in the middle of uh, a little town. It is, it is the hope of Jesus Christ in the city of Oswa in the Dominican Republic. That's right. And you, every single month, because of your generosity, have the opportunity to support him. So I want to do this. I want to pray for him this morning. I also got some special instruction. Uh, If you want to give to Pastor Raul, since we're highlighting uh, him, you can actually make your checks or or cash. You can can put it in the back uh, there. You can select it on the app. But if you write a check, you can write it to uh, Fountains of Life, which is the ministry Robert and Cindy uh, run. Uh, Raul cannot receive money from you since you're not a 501c3, but Robert and Cindy will give 100% of anything that's received today on behalf of Raul to them. Does that make sense? That's good. Let's, uh, let's just do this real quick. Since it is Mission Sunday, since we are talking um, about the church in the DR, let's pray for them. Let's pray for Robert and Cindy as well. If you could stretch your hands towards this direction, they're right over here. Uh, I don't know which direction the DR is, so just put the other one up in the air. How's that? <laughs> Jesus, we thank you for your global work. We thank you that you have, uh, you have moved on the hearts of people to go to the nations, to go and fulfill the great commission that all might become disciples, followers, lovers of Jesus, God. We pray for the unreached this morning. We pray for those who have not heard the name of Jesus yet. We pray for blessing, tremendous blessing, abundant life upon the church in Oswa, the Dominican Republic right now. We pray for Robert and Cindy as they continue their efforts there. And would you multiply the offering that is brought forth today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Come on, can we give them a hand just one more time? Thank you. Well, you know how I do. Uh, I got to sit down to focus. Remember, I just look around a lot. I get, you know, so distracted. So I'm going to be, I'm going to sit down as we continue uh, on in Esther. Did you make it to Esther yet? Are you in chapter eight yet? You're not in chapter eight yet? Good Lord. Oh, some of you are. Deb's, you know, Deb's in chapter eight. I am not Pastor James. If you're new here, I'm much better looking than Pastor James. Pastor James. (laughs) Yeah. Pastor James is on vacation this week. So we gave him the, uh, we gave him the Sunday off. We said, you know what? Take a break. Take a break. It's an incredible privilege to step in and, uh, and share, um, and I really am, I really am grateful. So we are in Esther 8, chapter 8, week 8, um, and look, as we get into Esther 8, some of you are like, gosh, we, I'm, I'm trying to remember where we came from. We're going to get there, don't worry. Last week we had a family Sunday, we celebrated baptisms, um, but this chapter is one of huge and tremendous like victory and celebration. Does anybody like a good celebration? Does anybody like a good party? We had a three-year-old birthday party. It was a party yesterday, okay? There was a water slide. You should have been there. We like a good party. If you're into titles and messages, today's, uh, today's title, if you will, of the, of, the, of the message is something I'm gonna call A Thousand Miles to Joy. A Thousand Miles to Joy. And I stole this idea from a story I heard actually in history class. They, they actually taught something at Fletcher. Um, I, I learned it in history class, and it's, it's the story of uh, when, when Union Pacific was starting to lay a bunch of rail, and they were heading west, all right? They, they were starting in Omaha, Nebraska, and they were going to do the, you know, continue on the transcontinental railway all the way to the Pacific Ocean, okay? And, you know, you can, you can imagine the heat. You can imagine working through the summers. You can imagine, I mean, that is some hard work laying rail. I don't know firsthand. I mean, I don't, my muscles are not big enough. That is some hard, uh, strenuous work. And they're going west. And at a certain point in the journey, a guy by the name of A.J. Russell, he looks at the crew he's working with and he says, gentlemen, we are a thousand yards from Omaha right here. And conveniently at the thousand, oh, sorry, a thousand yards, a thousand miles, a thousand miles from Omaha. And conveniently at the thousand mile marker, there was a 90-foot-tall tree that stood right there. So they just put a sign on it. You probably can't really read it because it's taken in 1869. But it says, a thousand-mile tree. 
And it became this marker. It became this image of hope, of the journey might be long, and it's hot, and it's strenuous, and the circumstances of travel might be very, very difficult. When you're working, you could say maybe they're working all the live long day. Okay, where do you think the song came from? There would be this tree that would say, you're, 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 you're making it somewhere. Trust the journey. It is a sign of hope. It is a sign to continue on. Because every single stake you drove in the ground brought you a thousand miles to this point. Every time you stood up and started working, it brought you to this point. I'm calling the message a thousand miles to joy because we are going to be in Esther 8, which is a lot about celebration and joy. Does anybody have joy in the house? Anybody got some joy in the house? We're going to begin with the end in mind here today. I want you to open to chapter, to chapter 8, but I want you to skip down to verse 16, verses 16 and 17. I'll be reading from the uh, NIV this time. It says, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, glad, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, we'll get there, just tuck that in the back of your mind, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting, can I get an amen, and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Just tuck that verse in the back of your head. We're going to get there. Some of you are like, what edict? Why are people becoming Jewish? We're going to get there. I love a good party. I promise I got to get to the party part. Okay, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, anybody familiar with the Enneagram? It's a personality test. I'm a type seven. It's called the enthusiast. It means you literally go from glory to glory. It go, you go from great event to great event. Now, there's a little bit of a shadow side to that. Sometimes I'll be in the middle of a huge party. I'm like, when's the next party? It's like, dude, the party's not even over. Why don't you just sit in this party to begin with? But I love when the good times are rolling. And this isn't at all a switch, a, 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 a gear shift here. We are living in good times. And I know you might not feel it with gas prices. And I know you certainly might not feel it with inflation. But on Friday... The Supreme Court overturned the Roe v. Wade ruling that stood since 1973. They finally overturned. Are you going to cry? That's right. I'm going to cry too. They over, and, and look, that we, we have to remember that along the journey, every time we drive a stake into the ground, we are making progress. And the fight to life and the sanctity of life, we're on a journey and we're making progress. And it's not over and certainly not everything will get better at the end. We know that. But we can't get nihilistic in our approach. We have to fight for life. And the church has to be the one leading the charge in that. Amen? Amen. Come on. We have a ways to go. I think it's the church's opportunity actually now more than ever to actually step up and double down with things like First Coast Women's Services, which is a crisis pregnancy center here in Jacksonville, to double down with things like Isaiah 117, which is heavy on the heart of your pastor to help kids transition into foster care. It's time for us to advocate for women. We don't just stand with a megaphone and say, protect life. No, we get involved in the fight. And we back our words with our actions. Roe v. Wade being overturned on Friday was just the beginning. And I think the church can have a, what if the church, just real quick, this is, this is off topic, but what if, what if the church could go to, to Mayor Lenny Curry and just say, we're going to take foster care off your plate. You don't have to worry about that anymore. The church is going to lead the charge in that. Would that not be absolutely groundbreaking in the city of Jacksonville? Yeah. We have a ways to go. We have a ways to go. I had to rewrite this, that portion of my notes because I was working on it up until Friday. And then on Friday... Turn the news on, and I saw, okay, God, maybe there is something to this. <laughs> and I had to rewrite my notes. But anyway, now is our time. It's, time. It's, it's the church's time. Amen? And history belongs to the intercessors. And history belongs to those who have sat in prayer meetings for 50 years, believing that this ruling would be overturned. Amen. Whew. Esther 8. Man, here we go. That was a side note. I'm sorry. Um, all right. Well, we began Esther April 24th, the week after uh, Easter. And... and, and here we are, all the way into the summer, still talking about Esther. And you're like, dude, get to the point. Well, here is the point. We can't, I, I, it would be a disservice of me to go ahead and read the rest of chapter 8 to you. So this is what I want you to do. In your Bible, go ahead and flip all the way back to chapter 1. If you've got notes in front, flip all the way back to chapter 1. It's really only like six or seven pages. Flip all the way back to chapter 1. Okay? Because we have to remember how we got to chapter 8. We can't just open to the party scene and act like everything is happy-go-lucky. Right? And Esther is an interesting, very complex book. Did you know that God is not ever mentioned in the book of Esther one time? It's one of two books in the Bible where the, where, where the name of God is never explicitly written down. Does anyone know the other one by chance? 
It's the Song of Solomon, the book about love and marriage and intimacy, right? The, the God is never actually explicitly written in the book. And that's not a translation issue in the book of Esther. It really was, God, God, God's name was never in it, but his hands were all up in it. You know what I mean? Like a, like a big chessboard. If I had a big chessboard up here on stage, we would see God is a master chess player moving the pieces of the book of Esther for his glory and for his purpose. And the entire story, I believe, is a lesson in God's faithfulness, working among his people a hundred years post the initial captivity of the Jewish people. Now, here's what that means. There was, a time, there was two times in history uh, where, the, where the Jews were actually taken from their land, one in Babylon, where we read books like Daniel, and one in Persia, which actually came before that, where uh, many had not returned to Jerusalem when Persia like, like overthrew Jerusalem. And we pick up in, in this story of Esther, and she's 100 years post the initial captivity. She has only known life in Persia. She's a Jew living in a, in, a, in, in a kingdom that is not friendly with her faith. Turn on your imagination machine and think for a second, what does it look like when the government is not friendly with your faith? I know you really have to imagine. I know you really have to imagine. They are, they, they've only known life in these circumstances, and yet all throughout the book are themes like irony and reversal and God's provision, and we, and we can't shake it off. In the midst of tyranny and huge obstacles, uh, to overcome. Esther was a, a Jew. She was a woman. She had no parents. We have no reason to believe that she had a job. And yet God used her to accomplish his purpose. She was a nobody. But how many of you know that God is in the business of taking the unlikely and turning it around for his glory? If I would have actually read through the book of Esther before we started our series, I just outed myself on that one. Uh, I would have named it unlikely. I think I would have gone to James and say, we need to name the Esther series something like unlikely because it is such an unlikely story of God's goodness, God's grace, and God's provision. And as we've been walking through it the last eight weeks, I couldn't help but think that it's, 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 these are the stories that we are truly drawn to, are they not? Think in your head about your favorite movie real quick. Go ahead. You have the freedom to think real quick about your favorite movie. Does it go something along the lines of this? There's a protagonist. There's an antagonist or some huge obstacle. And in the course of the movie, they overcome the obstacle or the person or the thing, and they come out on the other side. My mom's favorite movie is Sweet Home Alabama. I don't know that that one qualifies. Is it? Does that qualify? I don't think it does. It kind of does. It's a love story. We are drawn to rags to riches stories of a protagonist at great odds overcoming great obstacles and coming out on the other side. Are we not? If you don't believe me, what are the top three highest grossing movies of all time? Does anybody know one of them? Titanic. Not Star Wars. Avatar Endgame was number two. Or, sorry, number two. And then number one is Avatar, both by James Cameron, Avatar and Titanic. And they're all the same story. There, there, there was some bad guys in the Titanic, but what was the main obstacle? The boat was sinking. And she, was, she lived to tell the tale, right? Avatar, or, uh, uh, Avatar is the same way. Their planet was being overtaken, and the locals rose up, and they fought off the bad guy, and then they left. And Endgame, Avatar Endgame, or sorry, uh, Avengers Endgame is the same thing. They beat the bad guy, and we are drawn to stories like that. And you and I collectively pay billions of dollars to Hollywood every single year to go watch more of those movies. Because somewhere deep in our soul, I think we know that something is off, yes, but those stories, it's kind of our story, is it not? And it's the story of the whole Bible, and it is the story of Esther. Did anyone's movie not qualify on that little takedown? No one's? Cassie, yours didn't? Yes, yours? I don't, we overcome the water. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, allowing, uh, I'm allowing audience participation here today. Anyway, anyway, we, we love this. Okay, so now that you're in, now that you're in chapter one, she's going to throw the whole thing off. She's going <laughs> to... Now that you're in chapter one, think back with me, okay? We're introduced early on to a villain. Maybe a villain, maybe more of a drunken pushover. His name is King Xerxes, okay? And then Queen Vashti. Do you remember these people? If you weren't here, you're about to get a, a super fast, brief 
review of the book of Esther. We're introduced to King Xerxes, right? The drunk pushover, the, the king of Persia. Uh, we don't really like him, but we kind of have to bear with him because he's uh, kind of pivotal in the story. Okay, and he had a wife named Queen Vashti. And during a 180-day banquet, a huge party, like, like, a, like a kegger, really, if you know that term. He summons Vashti into his presence and says, you know, come before me with the incentive or, or she's kind of implying here, like, come and dance before me, impress all these men who are around, caress me, probably take your clothes off. It's wildly inappropriate. And she's like, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. So embarrassed, right, and, and feeling disrespected, he immediately, King Xerxes immediately deposes Vashti and says, you're no longer the queen. So what does he do next? He starts his own, like, this is The Bachelorette, like TV show on ABC. And he has, he has a beauty contest. And who enters the beauty contest? Esther. And enter on the scene Esther, the little nobody Jewish girl who God is going to use to radically shake the whole kingdom of Persia. She shows up and she, she captures early on, she captures the attention of King Xerxes. And she has an adoptive father, Mordecai, who's actually her cousin. Okay, because remember, she, she doesn't have any parents. We're not... We're not we're not told. And her, and, you know, under the encouragement of Mordecai, Mordecai's like, go and enter this contest. She quickly wins. She quickly becomes the popular choice and is elevated to the office of queen or the, the it wouldn't be the office, the, uh, the role of queen in Persia. In all of Persia, this nobody Jewish girl, don't let that get lost on you. She became the queen. It's a, it's a perfect parallel to the story of Joseph when he became number two in Egypt, right? She became the queen. And God is about to use her to do some crazy works in Persia. Now, Esther and Mordecai keep in touch throughout the story. All the way through the chapters, they keep in touch. Mordecai waits outside what's called the king's gate. And he would wait and Esther would come by, you know, maybe every other day, maybe once a week, and just update Mordecai on what was going on inside the palace. You know, one time even... Uh, Mordecai standing out there, and when Esther comes to him, he says, there is an assassin, assassination plot to overthrow and kill the king. You need to alert the king. And then Mordecai is actually honored for that. Yeah, thanks for saving my life, Mordecai, says the king. Um, and they kind of keep this open channel of communication. But one day, one day, the other villain in the story, his name is Haman, okay, Haman. Haman is an Agagite, which means he's been a longtime enemy of the Jews, Okay, the Agagites go way back to the book of Samuel, and they always tried to overthrow the Jews. Think about thousands of years of racism and of blatant disregard for an entire, entire people group. That was Haman in the flesh. His, his, the, where he came from was very unfriendly with the Jews. So, of course, it makes sense that he's living in Persia, a place that is really not friendly with the Jews, right? So Haman walks by the gate that Mordecai is standing at, and everyone just starts prostrating themselves and bowing down. Right? They start bowing down before him. Hail Haman. Right? He's, a, he's one of the highest nobles in the king's court. He's an official. He's a big deal. They're all bowing down, except one person. Who doesn't bow down? Mordecai refuses to bow. Mordecai says, that's not an option. I will not bow to a tyrant. I will not bow to a racist. I will not bow to a man who has made it his life's mission to kill others. I will not bow. Does that sound familiar at all to maybe what's going on in the world today? He will not bow. It reminds me of a story, I want to show an image here above, of a man named Augustus Landmesser. So the year is 1936, okay, and, and, and word had gotten out that there was a new warship that was going to be christened in a harbor in Germany, okay, and, and, and flocks of people would show up, and they would want to see this new dynamic leader christen this ship. And what do they do when the leader walks on the scene? Well, they salute the leader who we on this side of history know is Hitler, Adolf Hitler. They would salute him as a sign of allegiance, as a sign of honor, as a sign of respect. But saluting someone actually affirms the office in which they hold as well. They were, they were affirming that he would be this new dynamic, all-powerful leader, the Fuhrer of Germany. But if you look closely in the picture, there's one man that refuses to salute. Is the red circle up there? See it? He refuses to salute Hitler. This man was uh, a man by the name of Augustus Landmesser, and this act of defiance would actually end up costing him his life. 
And like Esther and like Mordecai, living in a place that's not necessarily friendly with their faith, his story is a little bit complicated. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Esther enter the beauty pageant to begin with? Why did she marry a pagan? The Bible isn't necessarily putting forth Esther as the, this, this incredible model for, for moral perfection. But it is saying that you can color outside the lines a little bit to still accomplish the mission for the glory of God. And this man was a little bit of a, because you're, you're going to go look it up, so I'm just trying to give you a little bit of heads up. This man was a little bit of a complicated figure. He got his Nazi card, thinking the party was a good thing, like when everyone joined the Empire in Star Wars, and then we're like, wait a sec, this isn't what we thought it was. That's what happened with this guy. He denounced the Nazi regime, okay? He also would meet a woman and then later marry her, and she would be Jewish, which means that, I mean, that's, that's grounds for immediate being overthrown out of the party, but also that is, that is, that is turning your back on what Hitler would call the race, this man would later disappear in Croatia. He would never be seen again. He would get disappeared. His wife would be sent to the camps, and his two daughters would later just bounce around from home to home until they reached the age of 16 and later moved to Poland. I mean, you want to talk about a story that cost him everything, but would you have, would have, would you have saluted? Would you have bowed to tyranny, even if it costed you everything on the other side? Augustus Lammesser did not bow, like Mordecai did not bow. And I think Mordecai thought back. Some people are like, how did he have the courage to not bow to Haman? He knew Haman, surrounded by all his guards, could have killed him on the spot, and he didn't. Where did he get the courage? I think he sat at his mother's feet, night after night, as a little Jewish boy in the kingdom of Persia, and I think he was told about the stories of God's people overcoming tremendous odds and God always bringing them out the other side. But even if he didn't, like the words of Daniel, do you remember? Even if he doesn't, I will still praise him. Mordecai would not bow. Where did he get the courage? Where did he get the courage to not bow in the face of evil? Henry David Thoreau wrote an essay called Civil Disobedience, if you've read it. And Thoreau writes, a minority is powerless if it, if it conforms to the majority. And now Thoreau came years after Mordecai. But I think in that moment, Mordecai would think, if I have God on my side, I am not a minority. I am the majority. And the God of angel armies, the God from everlasting to everlasting, if he is on my side, who can come against me? David would look, that's right, David would look at giants. David would look at giants and say, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the gods of the armies of Israel, which whom today you have defied. And on this day, David says, on this day, the Lord will hand you over to me and all will know that there is a God in Israel. Where do people get such courage? Well, with God on your side, you're not a minority. And with God on your side, you're not weak. That God actually plus nothing still equals everything. He just decides to actually fit you in there a little bit so you can get a piece of the pie and enjoy the riches of his strength, the riches of his power, the benefits. Like the psalm writer says, do not forget his benefits. Matthew 10, 32 says, stand up for me against world opinion and I'll stand up for you before my father in heaven. If you turn tail and run, I love the way it says that. This is the message translation. If you turn tail and run, do you think I'll cover for you? It's rhetorical. Do you think? No? Yes? How many of us can say that we've stood in the face of evil and stood firm against the schemes of the enemy? Why don't you do this real quick? Why don't you stand up? Why don't you just stand up? If you can. If you're able to. If you're able to, why don't you just stand up? And just for a second, would you look around? Just take, it, just take a look. Courage is contagious. And standing up is a statement People take note when you stand. And what I was going to say today, but couldn't because of Friday's decision, was that I might be looking at the generation where Roe v. Wade is overturned and thank the Lord that it is because the church and the prayer warriors have stood up to rewrite history. But it goes so much further than that. What else are you standing against? Are you standing up for the broken and the hurting? Are you standing up for the downtrodden and the forgotten? Is the church standing in the gap against evil? Is the church standing in the gap against 
the, the, the people on the margins that are often forgotten. Jesus did. Is the church, and listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to come against any one person in here in particular, but is the church standing up in the midst of Pride Month and saying, we're not gonna rewrite the truth of the Bible to say that marriage is not between a man and a woman because it is. We don't write the Bible, we just follow it. We, we, we just deliver it. We love you, we love the gay community, but we're not gonna bend our rules and bow a knee to your truth. There is the truth of God. There is the truth of God. We can't afford to bend the knee. We can't afford to let evil win. The entire Bible is a story of good versus evil, but really it's empire versus shalom, peace, fullness, fulfillment, and victory. And we believe in Christus Victor, the one who actually has won and has the final say. With God on our side, why would we ever bow? Why would we ever bow? Why would we ever pander? Why would we ever change what we know is truth? You cannot put a pronoun in front of truth. You cannot put an indicator in front of truth. It is truth. And it's time the church stands up and believes that. You can sit down. Thank you. As we move on into chapter four and beyond, the book continues. And because Mordecai didn't bow, Haman would immediately turn around and write a decree that would actually be his demise. But what do you do when the king's decree is actually your demise? Do you change? Do you go back? Do you repent to the king? Do you say, oh, I was just kidding? Mordecai was resolute in his convictions. And in a world of jellyfish, he stood up. And it cost him everything. Haman would write that all Jews in the surrounding area would be killed immediately for defying the orders of the king, but more so for disrespecting Haman. Think about, think about how insecure a person would be to write an order that would kill an entire people group because someone didn't bow to him. What we see here is multiple personality disorder and beyond. <laughs> Back to Thoreau, he would say, standing on your convictions is the right thing to do, yes, but it is not the easy thing. And sometimes there are consequences. And in, a, in an interview, once he would say, are you willing to face the consequences? Thoreau would say that we must be willing to face the consequences. Certainly Jesus did. And he didn't change his message, message all the way to the cross. And Mordecai was willing to face them. Haman wrote his decree. It was sent out. But remember, he has a cousin who's on the inside, Esther. He would go to Esther and say, you have to help. You have to do something. Come on. And Esther would look at him. And this response to me is absolutely mind-blowing. She says, one, if I perish, I perish. But what does she do next? She says, go fast and pray for three days. Don't eat or drink anything. And, and on the fourth day, on the fourth day, after God imparts wisdom to me, after I go take it to the Lord first, after I go and I actually think about and pray on and implore and, and, and intercede on behalf of our people to the Lord, we'll host a series of two banquets. And at the banquets, which is so odd that she didn't just go to the king and ask him to reverse the edict. There was something to be said about wisdom in that moment. What did the Lord give her when she was fasting and praying to say, go hold two large banquets and invite the king to them? Did that, was, that, was that part of the story lost on you? You're like, why, why the heck are they having another banquet? And then they have another one after that. I don't know what happened in the three days that she was fasting and praying for, but I think God led her to a place of wisdom that was not of herself. And how many of you in here, in the middle of any storm or trial or anything, when is prayer and fasting, when is that your first response? Because I'll tell you, it is not mine. I'm great at fixing things, except yesterday when I busted a pipe doing yard work. That was pretty bad. We flooded the whole yard. But I'm pretty good at fixing things. And how prideful of me to think that when things come my way, I'm all of a sudden Bob the Builder and can fix anything. How prideful of me, relationally, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, professionally in our workplace. What is it? Why don't we respond with prayer? We react and try to do a bunch of things and stay busy. But Esther 
her first reaction, her first, the first thing she went to was fasting and prayer. And I'm encouraged by that. She holds the two banquets. And at the banquets, one comes and goes. She gets all in the king's head. You remember that part? And the king couldn't sleep the night of the first banquet. So he has the records of the kingdom read to him, which is an odd nighttime reading. But, but what that simply means is he's being read the story of Persia. And in it, at the very end, he sees that Mordecai, that Mordecai would alert him to an assassination plot, which saved the king's life. So coincidental that he would read that the night before the next banquet. Because he would go to the next banquet, where Esther would then disclose, I am Jewish, Mordecai is Jewish, we are people who follow Torah. We are people of God. Now, here's the deal. There is a noble in your courts. His name is Haman, who was actually at the banquet, which might have been a little bit awkward. You must reverse the decree that Haman wrote against the Jews. And what does the king do? He listens. He remembers that the Jewish people had been friendly with his kingdom. He honors the wisdom of Esther, Jesus writes in Matthew 10, he tells us to be as wise as serpents, but as innocent as doves. There's nothing the king could have brought against Esther. All she brought to him was wisdom. She did what was right and not what was easy. Esther was acting in wisdom as she took this whole issue to the Lord first to begin with, remember? And what does the Lord do? He honors Esther. And then, and only then, do we get to chapter 8. And we read, the same day, meaning the same day that Haman was just overthrown, the same day that they begin to write the new edict, the same day, it's all happening right now, it leads to this point. Read with me, it says, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai and Esther and appointed them over Haman's estate. If you know what a signet ring is, it is the ability to stamp decisions when they are made, and the edict of the king goes out and everyone obeys it. He just gave authority to the people who just a few verses ago, Mordecai, was an enemy to the kingdom. You want to talk about irony and reversal or unlikely, the themes that we talked about in the beginning. This is an unlikely move of the king. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him. Here's an interesting note. In Persia, you could only be summoned to the king if he would extend the gold scepter to you. I don't know why. Seems weird to me too. That's just what, they, this is what it said. You extend the gold scepter to somebody and then they could come into the presence of the king. Esther had already gone into the presence of the king and said, if I perish, I perish. And for some reason, for some reason, unbeknownst to us, King Xerxes decided not to take her head in that moment. And now look where God is leading them. Let's keep going. Verse five says, if it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor, and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Verse seven, King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew. He said, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given the estate, to Esther. And they have impaled him on a pole that he set up. Yikes. Remember two weeks ago when Haman set up the gallows, the poles to, to, to impale the Jews, particularly Mordecai? Haman was killed on the very instrument of death he created for somebody else. Irony and reversal. Where did I leave off? Help me out. Verse 8. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as it seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring. He's saying, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. And what are they going to do with it? For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. Verse 9, it says, At once the royal secretary, secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of, the month of Seban, 
they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, the governors, the nobles, and to the 127 pro- uh, provinces stretching from India to Kush. This is a massive territory. They were going to kill all of the Jews in this territory. Millions of Jews. These orders are written in the, written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. When I was reading up on the commentary on this, this is actually an important note because Persia did not owe you an explanation of what the king's decree was. It was, here's the decree. If you don't speak Persian, sucks to be you. They wrote it in every single language, a request of Mordecai, and every single scribe so that it would go to all people. There would be no confusion. There would be no confusion. It reminds me of the verse that I just said back from Samuel. That this day, you will know there's a God in Israel. It's saying this day, you will know that all across the kingdom of Persia, you will know there is a God. And there is no one without excuse when the decree comes forth. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble. That's a, that's a good one, right? The right to assemble. The right to protect, some, protect themselves. That's, that's a really... You wonder where we got it in our founding documents. To destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. I just am saying the date so you know this actually happened. This is history. This isn't fairy tale. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as a law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And here's my absolute favorite part, verse 15. It says, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white. He was wearing a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. Remember, this man was the man the whole kingdom was willing to kill and all of his people. And because of the wisdom and the courage of a couple people to do the right thing, even though they were the minority, with God on their side, they would overcome great odds. He was wearing a crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. That's not, that's, uh, this is, this celebration is not called uh, Purim, which Jewish people today still celebrate. Verse 16 says, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province, say every province, 127 of them, every single one, and in every city to which the king or the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many, someone say many, many, many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Wait a second. They see this large story of irony and reversal, of standing in the midst of a world that wants to kneel, and at the very, very end of the story, when, when, when Mordecai and Esther had risked everything and God still showed up, at the very, very end of the story, people would take note and say, what the heck just happened? They were going to kill Mordecai. I saw it in the paper. They were going to kill the Jews. I read the edict. And now fear of the Jews is overcoming people and they are, they are, they are literally becoming Jewish? Tell me that courage is not contagious. Tell me that standing against the face of evil is not powerful. They would all disagree with you because fear of the Jews had seized them. It was a time of happiness. It was a time of joy. It was a time of gladness. It was a time of celebration. But how did we get here? Oh, the long journey, the thousand mile journey to joy. Oh, the thousand mile journey to joy. Faith, courage, wisdom, and trust are four things that I wrote down in thinking about this chapter. I think Esther and Mordecai had the faith to believe that God would be faithful and provide and protect along the way. 
I think they had the courage to stand up and do the right thing. Not the easy thing, the right thing. I think they had the wisdom to operate intentionally and not irrationally. Two banquets, why don't you just write him a letter and say reverse the edict? No, she knew, she knew how to approach the king. And they had trust in the Lord that he would be their deliverance. I'm gonna go ahead and invite the band back up if they would. Remember, a thousand mile journey to joy. Remember the thousand mile tree? Remember we opened with that? You don't think along the way there were some things, there were some decisions, there were some moments that were really hard and that stuck out. But imagine the day, just dry, parched desert, like on Monday when it was like 100 degrees here. Remember that? Imagine reaching the tree and saying, oh, we're going somewhere. I've driven these stakes in the ground all the live long day, but we are going somewhere. (laughs) Do you trust the journey? Do you trust that God is actually using the things that you're walking through to take you somewhere? Life is not suffering when you have Jesus. He came to give life and life abundantly. And some of you along the way, you've stood faithfully, you've stood courageously, you've stood against evil, you've stood against government overreach when the church was shut down, you said, no, absolutely not. You stood against things. And I believe that for that, the Lord, yes, I believe he will bless you, but here's what I want you to think. Maybe he is the blessing in the, in the, in the midst of it all. Maybe he is enough. The 12 tribes of Israel, the Levites wouldn't get a portion of land in the Old Testament. They would say, your portion is the Lord. Is your portion the Lord? Is he your portion? Is he enough for you? Is it enough for you to say, I know and I can stand confidently before God that I did the right thing. I stood in the gap. I spoke up for the lifeless. Have you been the good Samaritan? Has, has works and actions followed your faith? Or have you just sat down and said, no, nah, the church doesn't need to get involved in that. I tell you, Jesus died for a lot more than compartmentalized Christianity. He died for com- comprehensive belief in him. And he said, and it's in his word, occupy until I come. Are you occupying? Or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Surely this story tells us that it leads somewhere. The journey leads somewhere. Jesus's thousand mile tree would be the cross. And it really did cost him everything. But did his message change along the way? It certainly didn't. I want to read this in the ESV now, Esther 8, 16. It said, the, Jew, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and every city where the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And a many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Lord had fallen on them. Let's read it one more time in the message version now. Mordecai walked out of the king's presence wearing a robe, a royal robe of violet and white, a huge crown and a purple cape of fine linen. The city of Susa exploded with joy. For Jews, it was all good times and laughter. I love the way they write this. It was all good times and laughter. They celebrated, they were honored. It was that way all over the country in every province, every city when the king's bulletin was posted. Come on, there were good times and laughter and honor. The Jews took to the streets in celebration, cheering and feasting. Not only that, but many non-Jews became Jews. Now it was dangerous to not be a Jew. Thank God for reversal. Thank God for irony. It just makes you laugh a little bit. Why don't you go ahead and stand with us this morning as we as we close. There's some things to think about today. May our church never be one that conforms to the image of the world. Because our beliefs do not. May we never be people who are afraid to stand up for truth because it can lead to our chapter eight. I believe that. Some of you were alive during the revivals in Beaches Chapel. I certainly wasn't. But does chapter eight, verses 16 and 17, does it give you any nostalgic memories to think of the way the Lord moved in this place years and years ago when meetings were overflowing out the doors here and this, and this, on this very campus, out the doors because people could not fit in. 
and there was salvation in the streets and any pond became a baptismal. Who has hope for our country again that this can be us? There can be a great revival. I believe that. I believe that. But I think we have to be willing to examine where we stood. We have to remember where we've come. We can't abandon our beliefs. We can't abandon our mission along the way. Just like I said, Jesus' tree would be the cross. And for anybody in here today, would you close your eyes? Would you bow your heads? For anybody in here today who's been on the fence about trusting Jesus, believing in Jesus, following the ways of Jesus, I think now is your moment. And you say it in your own words, but the Bible says, if you believe in your heart, that Jesus is God, the Son of God. And if you confess with your mouth that yes, he died for my transgressions and he was raised on the third day on my behalf, that I might rise with him and have life and life everlasting and life abundantly. You say that in your own words. And you just say, God, here I am. You cry out, Abba, Father, here I am. The Bible says you will be born again and taken from death life. Father, I pray for those in here today who in a world that would tell the church to stay out of certain conversations, I pray that you would give us courage to a world that would say abide by a certain set of rules. Remind us, God, of your word to pray for the, the, the welfare of the nation in which we are in, because our welfare is directly tied to it. Jeremiah 29 said, to occupy until you come. That yes, you might be sending us out as sheep among wolves and we will be wise, but also maintain innocence. Gird up our knees, God, that we might stand in the face of evil. That we might stand against adversity. Believing that the thousand mile journey that we are on sometimes, the other side of it is joy. And today we mark our very own tree and say the journey has been long, but here we are and joy is on the other side. Gladness is on the other side. Honor is on the other side. Light is on the other side because the light of the world has come in to this world, you, Jesus, and you will drive out darkness, we believe. And as your co-laborers, as those you have commissioned, we take heed. Jesus' name.